Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Welcome to another episode. This is 141. It feels like we've been doing this for about 10 minutes, but... Yeah. It's funny, actually, because I'm, I'm going to refer to a, an old episode uh, in this one. And I thought, oh, I, I thought probably, what, it was about six months ago. I thought, I'd better check. Oh, yeah. And the one I'm going to refer to, we actually did in 2020. Oh, man. Do you know, I was thinking the same. Somebody was talking about um, that Beatles thing that we covered. Do you remember oh, yeah, the yeah, Beatles yeah. never split up? Yeah. And I was looking for the episode where we covered that because we had um, your friend, the drummer, come in and analyse yeah, it. Yeah, Irving from Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. Yeah. yeah, that was 18 months ago. Wow. It's, it's kind of crazy. It's funny, this um, this weird perception of time, and that one was about alternate realities. I, I, last weekend, felt like I was in an alternate reality. I went to um, see the ABBA hologram show. That is like an alternate reality. Yeah, I mean, any, I'm sure most people know about it, but ABBA have kind of done these holograms of how they were in the, what, I guess, late 70s? Uh, that was there when they were at their height, I think, or early eighties, um, and turned it into a big show. And I went a little bit sceptical. I'm like, well, you know, I'm just going to be clapping computer code, and you know, do they have a button that says encore if we clap loud enough? And I was kind of cynical. I came out of the thing going, and I'm not huge musically. I'm not a huge ever fan. I came out going, that was extraordinary. It was like there was one point when the bands come on at the end, how they look now and i'm like is that them or is that a hologram i could not tell it was it was incredible wow it's a great money maker though isn't it if you could just record yourself and then get people to pay for live i mean i hand it to them but it, it's a better experience than watching it on telly i'd imagine oh i know it's incredible and the like i mean they they you know the money was on the stage as they say although the tickets were quite expensive but um, no it was amazing absolutely amazing um I was almost hysterical, Ben. <laughs> that sounds like a, a segue. Yeah, a kind of uncomfortable segue. Yeah, because I want to return uh, to a subject that we covered, as I said, uh, well, in 2020. And I think it came about because of the episode that we did last week where you were talking about the blurred lines between dream states and waking states and that in some way could result in paranormal encounters or sightings or at least yeah. people perceiving they were having one and it's almost like a false memory of a dream rather than reality and I, I don't think we touched upon it in the episode but I that there were there were a couple of things that I started thinking quite heavily about after that episode one that concept um, and the other was how that thing worked that you you talked about where there was that study where there were the photos coming up and there was a random number generator yeah. creating the photos. Sometimes it was of something threatening like a gun. Sometimes it was of something beautiful like a flower. Yeah. But before the people in the study knew what they were going to see, their bodies almost started to react to it before... The yeah. image was revealed. Yeah, there was a precognition. Yeah, that blew my mind. And the other bit was of that one of blurring dreams and reality. I could see how that could happen for an individual, but I start. I came away going, 
Well, how does mass hysteria fit into this or mass sightings things like phoenix lights stuff like that where mm. i know that's slightly different because there is video evidence but when people see things on mass how would that fit into that theory mm. um so i thought i would dig around and see if i could find out a bit more about mass hysteria excellent because um you've done that before and there's been some there's been some brilliant things that you brought up which i had no idea even existed yeah, we might return to a couple of those. So in that original episode, which was, I think, in October 2020, what we'll do in the show notes or the description for the, this episode, we'll put links to that episode if you haven't heard it and you want to go back and listen to it. But we are going to return to a couple of stories that we did in that episode. Uh, there was two that really stood out for me. There was... Meowing Nuns, who we've talked about quite a lot since. I love the Meowing Nuns. Uh, which I'll come on to in a minute. Uh, and there was another famous one about a town that danced itself to death. Mm. Uh, so they were from the 15th century, the nun epidemic, and the 16th century, the dancing to death. And I wanted to return to those stories, A, because I like them, but particularly because I found an academic paper that gives more detail on those two events. Oh, wow. And it explores the psychology that might be at play behind it all. Yeah, because that is, I guess, the most mysterious thing about it is, well, yeah, you just wonder if you're a nun and you're just making breakfast, then another one comes and goes, meow. That you all start. Yeah, Why? you just go, well, I'll meow back then. Yeah, yeah, and that, but, but, but it spreads everywhere. <laughs> Pass the milk. So the paper that I came across is by someone called John Waller. Uh, at the time of writing, he was from the Department of History at Michigan State University. Has a pronounceable name as well, that helps. Yeah, that helps. Um, and his paper was first published in 2009 and is titled Dancing Plagues and Mass Hysteria. Oh, wow. So let's start with the dancing epidemic phenomena. So this was first recorded in 1374, where a number of towns along the River Rhine, which encompasses, among other countries, Switzerland, Austria and Germany, they were struck by this strange affliction. Residents of dozens of towns started spontaneously dancing. Now, I'm not talking about in the dance floor on a Saturday night here, Ben. They felt the compulsion to dance for hours even days at a time, with little consideration for resting or even eating. Do I recall as well, they tried to cure them by adding musicians to the mix? That, that is in a later story, which I'll oh, get onto, okay. but well remembered. Yes, that not, not in these cases. So these ones were just spontaneously dancing with no music. Um, witnesses at the time described these dancers as wild frenzies, at frenzied and seeing visions. One witness described those swept away with the weird compulsion, saying they danced, their minds were no longer clear. Another said, having wearied themselves through dancing and jumping, they went raging like beasts over the land. <laughs> beasts, raging like beasts. Now, within a few weeks, this phenomena had spread to France and the Netherlands, but after several months, this weird waltzing just kind of subsided, stopped. 
just as quickly as it came yeah it, it I, vanished. I, yeah pretty much i think you know it, by i think it it spread over a couple of months and then just died out over a couple of months until in 1518 when it reappeared in the town of strasbourg which is the one that you're referring to oh, okay. earlier okay so this time it was bigger and more intense than ever in the episode we did in 2020, we detailed more of the events in Strasbourg, but as a way of quick summary, a few people started inexplicably dancing and then more joined in. And this is the bit you were referring to, Ben. The authorities in the town, it kind of guess as a misguided attempt to control the situation, they decided to gather these rogue ravers in the town square and even laid on music for them. As you can probably guess, this just made the situation worse and more and more people joined in. Yeah, I don't really see the logic. No, I don't get the logic behind that. Probably thought, oh, they'll just dance it out of their system if we get abandoned. But they didn't dance it out of their system because these people danced for hours, even days on end. They had bleeding feet and many died of exhaustion. I Again, I still don't understand how you can do that because... When you get tired, you know, the the only time you dance, what, at a wedding, if you end up in a nightclub, uh, you know, at our age, you know, a couple of hours, you're like, blimey, I'm going to sit down and yeah. have a glass of water. You don't, it's, you must have a disassociative mind. Well, I'll come on to some of the rationale in a minute. In that example, in the Strasbourg one, the I think the authorities finally broke it up by bringing in the army, who... Bringing the yeah, army, yeah, they quelled the whole thing, and they started dancing. Then they brought in the police. They started dancing. Before you know it, you got the village people, yeah. and everything's gone wrong. Literally, the village people. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, before we look at the possible explanations for those events, um, I want to return to meowing nuns. Of course, can we just talk about meowing nuns? <laughs> they feature heavily in John Waller's paper. Now, we did cover this original story in the Mass Hysteria episode we did in 2020, but Waller and other sources, uh, I've done a bit of digging and I've found far more information and detail on the story. So in 1491, so this is around 25 years before the people of Strasbourg were dancing themselves to death, a nunnery in the Spanish Netherlands was gripped by equally, if not more bizarre, epidemic. According to records, several nuns in this particular nunnery were possessed by devilish familiars. Which is is a good turn of phrase. It is, isn't it? They were compelled to race around like dogs. So there's more than just the cat thing going on. They jumped out of trees imitating (laughs) birds. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on a minute, because the amount of effort to get into a tree. Yeah. Or, <laughs> um, okay, Mary's well, gone up the tree. How long has it taken her? An hour. Well, this is how they might have got up the tree. It says they meowed and clawed their way up tree trunks in the manner of cats. <sighs> now, I wonder how accurate that is as a... Well, the, I, I'll, I'll come on to that as well, but um, I should put a little listener... Caution, re-note in at this point. Don't climb trees. Don't climb trees. No, no, not any. Don't don't try this at home. Uh, 
the next bit does have some things that you know maybe younger ears you wouldn't want to listen to there's uh there's some adult tinged content coming up basically okay okay you look scared ben. <laughs> i'm wondering what on earth is going to be said so anyway, so from that nunnery, over the next 200 years, in nunneries from Rome to Paris, hundreds were plunged into a state of delirium during which they foamed, foamed at the mouth, screamed, suffered convulsions, sexually propositioned priests... <laughs> yeah, in the manner of a cat. Yeah, and confessed to having carnal relations with devils or Christ. Wait, he... <laughs> The two aren't mutually exclusive? <laughs> yeah, no, apparently not. Oh. Now, a number of theories have been put forward over the years as to the reasons for these two bizarre outbreaks, the town that danced itself to death and this kind of pandemic of meowing, dog-like, flying bird nuns who got a bit frisky. In terms of the dancing plagues, it's been suggested that those who initiated it, or got the whole thing started, were part of a heretical dancing cult. <laughs> which so- uh, why? Which somehow corrupted everyone into depravity through the medium of dance. I don't know why. Now, well, I've you see, I've heard this before, this being enticed into... Um, depravity, like aligned to this, I won't go into it, but I was reading the other day about how um, jazz music was blamed for turning women into prostitution. Right. And the whole of the, you know, the rhythm of it was blamed. So I could see it's it's an idea that has persisted in different forms. Well, it's funny you say that because I thought about, um, you know, corrupting everyone into depravity through the medium of dance. Kind of what people were saying when me and you were going through illegal raves in the 90s. Wasn't oh, it? yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah we were going to be like, I mean, not in a kind of biblical sense condemned, but, you know, we were frying our brains and it was the falling, you know, it felt at times like people were saying it's the end of, you know, civilized society. Yeah. Well, because um, I think the criminal justice bill specifically mentioned repetitive beat music. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it did. Which has nothing to do with what the tabloids were getting upset about, which was the drug taking. But yeah. but that was that was an adjunct to the music scene. But yeah. any, anyway, I could get cross about it. But yeah, yeah. So so the, I, I think those parallels are there, aren't they? Between you know, yeah. way back with this dancing plague and the like you were saying, jazz music, the rave scene. Um, other descriptions were that people were possessed by spirits on de- or demons mm-hmm. on mass. So not just one-off kind of possession, but in, in, in groups. Theories have circulated that the behaviour was caused by an illness or virus that people at the time did not understand. Mm-hmm. Biological explanations have been put forward. I think we did touch on this in the first episode, that these people ingested something like ergot. I think mm-hmm. it's ergot, you mm-hmm. say it, right? Yeah. Which is a mould uh that I think is connected with wheat, isn't it? And it can cause hallucinations and kind of strange behaviour. Yeah. But John Waller, the the uh, academic who wrote this paper, his theories on what may have caused these events centre very much on a psychological explanation. And it's centred around, you kind of saw this coming, people slipping into a disassociated trance. Hmm. 
which is what we touched on last week in the dreams thing. So I was kind of, yeah. I felt my instinct was quite good when I read that. It was yeah. like, okay, this is coming up. So uh, disassociated trances, it's a condition that involves, among other things, a dramatic loss of self-control and an altered state of consciousness, which is why you can get hallucinations and imagine things, etc. Yeah, this is very close to what we were talking about. Yeah. But, but what brings a lot of people into that state all at once? Well, I think that's a good point because the dissociated trance state might explain how these events may have happened, but it doesn't explain why it happens and why it happened en masse, right? Mm. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Well, Waller has a theory on that. So in terms of the original Dancing Plague in 1374, so that's pre the more famous one that we talked about mm. in Strasbourg. The area of the Rhine was hit by one of the worst floods in a century. This is incredible. The waters of the Rhine rose 34 feet. That's over 10 metres. That's a lot. Yeah. How many bungalows? <laughs> <laughs> was that... Was that um... Was there a particular storm that hit, or was it just unusual rainfall? Just, yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I don't know what the root cause, but it was one of the worst in a century. Ten metres, that, that's really stuck with. That's incredible. That is really high, yes. So many towns were submerged. Homes were lost. There were, oh, there were terrible descriptions in some of the historical uh, uh, accounts of rotting animals like horses that were just floating in the streets, you know, the, what was left of the streets, basically. Mm. Yeah, the whole town's terrible. Um, as similarly, in the decade before the 1518 Strasbourg Dancing Plague, that area had suffered famine, bitterly cold weather, crops had failed, and farmers from the surrounding areas had descended on the town basically because it was too hot. There was no food. There was nothing in the countryside. Right. That overcrowding led to uh, disease, leprosy, plague, syphilis, and that all added to the pain and suffering. Which made me think about something we have talked about before, uh, especially in that Grim Reaper episode where we talked about strange paranormal activity and UFO sightings oh, being associated yeah. with great plagues. Mm, mm. I think we made one of us made a joke about, oh, there's a lot of plaguing going on at that time. Yeah, there? yeah, yeah, there was a lot of plaguing. Yeah, you couldn't move for plagues. So I guess the implication is that if you're living through all this misery, hardship, death, you can see why someone might disassociate, lose self-control, and somehow that spreads throughout the community. I guess almost like a form of PTSD. Yeah, but uh, yeah, on mass, and because mass, everybody yeah. is in that position, you know, we talked about it. I think as also being a release. It's like you feel like you're out of control. That that's some release, and somebody goes, "Well, they're disassociating. They look happy. I might have a bit of that." Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know whether. Would they be taking drugs and alcohol to relieve it, which probably just goes into a vicious cycle? I mean, I guess you can only speculate. Yeah, yeah, whether they could get hold of that. But yeah. Yeah, possibly, possibly. However, so that, that made me start thinking of lots of things and lots of examples of that kind of stress, that, that environment where 
you just disassociate because it's so miserable. Life existence is so miserable. But Waller points out that during the peak of the meowing nuns, nunneries were largely protected from those hardships. Now, no one's saying it was all champagne and caviar, Mm -hmm. but in terms, in relative terms, they had shelter. They lived in sheltered locations, minimal access to the outside world. So, you know, disease, all those things were less likely there. And, you know, the power of the church and all that stuff, they did have access to the essentials of living, like food. So, in in comparison, they were protected from all this stuff. So why did mass hysteria take hold there? Guilt, maybe? Well, yeah, Waller proposes that a different kind of psychological pressure could be responsible. He pointed out that many of the nuns were not there by choice. Many were sent there by their families to protect them from many of the struggles that we've been discussing from, Mm. you know, disease, famine, you know, and temptation, I Mm. guess. Mm. Mm. Those that were not there by choice were suddenly in this extremely restricted environment, silent contemplation, prohibited from any sexual desires and thoughts, and they had to totally dedicate themselves to God and the doctrine of belief, basically. They didn't want to be there in the first place. Right, yeah. Waller also points out that for those those nuns who did want to be there, the pressure could be equally as bad or maybe even worse. He describes that they often felt tormented by feelings of falling short of the exacting standards of holiness imposed by their orders. Plenty reflected with terrible fear on the fiery destiny awaiting those with impure minds. <laughs> the fiery destiny. So they kind of felt that any thoughts, that A, they weren't living up to the grade, and any stray thoughts that seemed ungodly, they were going to go to hell, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly Father Ted, is it? Not really. Oh, well, talking of Father Ted, uh, one example that kind of illustrates this it's a terrible story. It involves, uh, I've got to do some French here, so uh, it involves a mother superior of Ludon Nunnery. Her name is Jean des Angis. I'm going to say that. Uh, she was mother superior of a nunnery in southern France. Now, the mother superior in the year 1627 became infatuated with a local priest called Father Grandier. Oh, he's got a good name. Yeah. And it had disastrous consequences. Was he really big? (laughs) Sort of nerves. (laughs) Now, after this incident, uh, the Mother Superior kind of did a bit of confession. And she said, and talked about the start of her obsession. She said, "When when I did not see him, I was burned with desire for him. Because of this, she felt overwhelmingly worthless and suffered great guilt. She tried painful penance. I'm not quite sure what that means, but it doesn't sound too pleasant. uh, And reflection. And then the academic Waller describes her falling into a disassociated state. And she started repeatedly accusing Father Grandier of plotting with Satan to make her lust after him. (laughs) 
That's what I would do. <laughs> well, the interesting bit is, within days, other nuns began to accuse the priest, who had, by all accounts, done absolutely nothing. Apart from smell gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, and have a good name. Um, and it didn't end well for him. Oh, no. There was an inquisition, and he was burned at the stake. Oh, man. Again, so much burning at the stakes. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there are many, many more examples of it the other way around with the priests and nuns that don't get repulsed. But that is an incredible story that basically because of her lust and desire for him, the, she disassociated, according to the academic, mm. and the only way she could deal with that is accuse him of being in league with the devil. And, yeah, other other nuns kind of joined her in this disassociated state and said the same about this this poor priest who ended up being burnt at the stake. So the academic Wallace sees parallels with the meowing nuns. Uh, he he believes that the guilt-ridden longing for human intimacy, uh, I guess that could not be rationalised with their strict religious beliefs, triggered a collective breakdown. He points out that during their disassociated states, the meowing nuns would also engage in lewd behaviour. <laughs> they would lift their habits. <laughs> <laughs> They would simulate copulation. And they even gave, gave their perceived demons disgusting names, like Dog's Dick. <laughs> it seemed that the crackdown by the church after these incidents that included a combination of harsher living conditions and more abstinence and the introduction of more hardcore mother superiors resulted in more cases of group possession rather than less. Right, so this is beginning to prove his theory a little. Yeah. Many nuns started accusing these hardline mother superiors of witchcraft, and some of them were also convicted of witchcraft. Oh, man. Now, there is a lot in the paper about how this is not just limited to religious belief or doctrine. Um, my interpretation was that if you believe in the idea of, say, possession, like, you know, in a in a paranormal sense that you're more likely or susceptible to enter disassociated trances because you have this belief system mm. that gives you a kind of, I, I don't know how you would call it, a setting maybe is a way of describing it. Mm -hmm. And if that belief is part of your community or culture, you're more likely to get in the phenomena of group trance possession. Right. And you're more prone to disassociated states because you kind of believe whether it's a kind of a religious thing, you believe in God or you believe from a paranormal perspective that a spirit can enter your body. You're more open to that belief. You may disassociate and believe it. Yeah. And if you're in a community of people who believe that, you may come together in that belief and you, you group You can put a story together that makes sense to you. Yeah, exactly. Which is very similar, as you said, to what I was saying last week about um, people being able to create a story around a paranormal entity um, when they were uh, suffering from schizophrenia or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I can see the parallels. And he also talks about in the example of the town that dances itself to death, 
that because the people had suffered great hardship, there was a belief that what had happened over the kind of preceding 10 years was some kind of divine punishment. So in a way, they were primed to enter that disassociated dancing state en masse because they felt they were being punished that there was mm. some divine spiritual intervention. Yeah. It also briefly made me think about uh, some of the stuff we've talked about, Victorian ghost stories and times, how we we did it with the spring Jack episode and some of the other ghost stories that men at the time would kind of go, oh, these kind of crazy hysterical women talking about these supernatural things aren't they so stupid that you know maybe there might be some truth in that in the fact that because of the misogyny and the oppression maybe women were more likely to kind of rebel like the nuns and almost go into a disassociated state if they Mm. did see something that was a little bit unusual and turn it into something that was more paranormal than maybe actually was yeah yeah, well, I mean, if you were, because essentially when you become a nun, you are being asked to believe in lots of different aspects of the paranormal. So adding new elements to that is is quite easy. Yeah. And and then you could turn it around and go, well, you could use those, um, those stories to fight back at your oppressors. Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's a lot more in the paper a lot more detail about um the psychology but my kind of layman's reading of it is that the hardship the traumatic circumstances plagues etc the rigid authoritarianism and cultural group beliefs can lead to this group disassociated state and what we would call mass hysteria mm-hmm mm-hmm Now, interesting, while I was researching cases of mass hysteria, I was struck by the vast majority of modern-day cases being associated with school children or relating to children of school age. I mean, again, we covered some of these in the previous episode, such as there were laughing outbreaks Hmm. in schools in Africa. There was that one about the Portuguese teen drama that was set in a school that created a fake virus storyline and then the next day, real school children started catching this fake virus mm. and the authorities didn't know where this thing had come from and it caused this mass panic. And those stories and the meowing nuns go with me on this and the nuns' behaviour made me think about the Enfield poltergeist case. Because the young girl at the centre of that case, Janet, would often use lewd language and sexual innuendos while in a seemingly possessed state. Yeah. And she would do it towards the paranormal investigators, Lion and Playfair, who must, to her, would also, I guess, would have symbolised some kind of authority-type figures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, I'm I'm not saying that's what happened, but it did make me consider it in light of what we did said last week and this episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, in in that case, if you know, if um, if she was, if she had convinced herself that she was um, possessed, then it gives you um, it, it gives you carte blanche to be rude and do all the things you shouldn't do. Well, and also, it, it, there's almost two 
there's the believers and the skeptics view of the Enfield poltergeist. There's the yes, she was possessed, or the other the 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 other side is well, she was making it up. But actually, this disassociated state argument could provide a third way. Mm, I see. Yes, yes. She she may have been in a dissociated state, but totally believed what was happening was paranormal and supernatural. I, I see what you mean. And the, the other thing that when you said poltergeists, uh, that episode we did on whether they're a contagion. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that sort of, that fits in to this because it might not just be a contagion in a virus. It could be a contagion in a disassociative state. Yeah, in a psychological yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, th- it, I also started thinking about something else that you briefly mentioned last week. And it, and it was to do with the fact that we've said it a lot on the podcast. When it comes to paranormal ca- paranormal cases, we've added greater weight to officials such as military or police who report seeing strange phenomena, right? So, mm-hmm. like like Lonnie Zamora, right? Mm. But if you go with the thread of this paper, there are factors in their working environment that could make them more prone to slip into a dissociated state. So stressful working environments, they sometimes seeing and dealing with traumatic incidents. So, you know, they see some incredibly stressful things. Um, There is a hierarchical structure as well. So it kind of ties into some of the elements we've been talking about, the nunnery, all that kind Mm. of stuff. And we always go, well, it was a policeman who saw it, so... It's got to have more credibility. But in some ways, if you follow the thread of this paper, they could be more prone to be in a disassociated trance. Yeah, 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 that does make sense, yes. Which then (laughs) led me to think about the Rendlesham incident. Oh, right. Uh, Oh, as as in terms of mass hysteria. Yeah, in terms Mm. of mass hysteria. Even Foo Fighter sightings during World War II. Because you had groups of people, not just individual pilots, who saw stuff. Now, I'm not again. I'm not saying those were, yeah. but it's an interesting thread to pull on. It is. It is. I think I'm <laughs> right in saying that Nick Redfern suggested that the Rendlesham incident could have been a mixture of testing psychological warfare and drugs, which would, which doesn't discount what you're saying because the. The drugs would put you into that disassociative yeah, could in, state. Or en- enhance it. Yeah. Because, you know, if you do take the military, like the meowing nuns, military more than probably police, there are really strict rules, set ways of behaving, credible stress, especially if you're in the theatre of war. You know, we know a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but I started thinking... Well, I would expect there to be more reports of mass hysteria type events than there are if this thread works, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some documented cases. There's a famous one from San Diego called the San Diego Incident of 1988. I don't know if you've heard about that. No. So this was where the US Navy evacuated 600 men from barracks 119 went to hospital complaining of breathing difficulties. 
All logical causes, such as toxins or poisons, were ruled out. No explanation for the incident was ever found. Um, and it has been put down to a mass hysteria event. They suddenly started saying that they couldn't breathe. But, you know, so <sighs> now conspiracy theorists would probably say the kind of test that you're talking about they could have been used as guinea pigs for. But it has been put down as a mass hysteria event. Oh, you've well, you've just reminded me the other one that springs to mind from that is the Mad Gasser mm. incidents where people would say that um, the, there was someone was outside their house putting gas in through through the window. They would display symptoms, but no evidence yes. ever found. Yeah. Um, there was absolutely no evidence of toxic gas, but people would swear blind there was this mad gasser on the loose. Yeah, yeah. But apart from that incident, there are few that I could find from the military. Now, I guess a... A cynic would say it's not really in the military's interest to publicise such mm, events, mm, right? Mm. Would you want to admit that your military was susceptible to outbreaks of mass hysteria or dissociated trances? Probably not. No, right? no. I did wonder whether the angels of Mons might fit into this theory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was where British World War One soldiers reported seeing angels on the battlefield who were there to help them, right? They help them win the battle. Yeah. And in fact, um, they're celebrated in a statue, I think. Yeah, and there's poems as well. There's the yeah. artwork poems. I wondered if this could be some, you know, mass hysteria, disassociated trance. Now, I'm sure there are people listening to this right now who might feel that this could never happen to them, that they could never be caught up in this kind of mass hysteria. So I want to leave you with the story of Emirates Flight 203. <laughs> no, an aeroplane story. <laughs> oh, don't scare me. I'm, I hate flying. Well, in September 2018, 106 passengers on board a 506-passenger flight from Dubai to New York, 14-hour flight, reported extreme symptoms including coughing, sneezing, fever and vomiting. The Centre for Disease Control, the US Centre for Disease Control, met and quarantined the plane on landing in New York. 11 people were hospitalised and passengers nicknamed the incident the flight from hell. I'm going to play you a little bit of an NBC news report of the incident after the plane had landed. Have a listen to this. Emirates Flight 203 quickly quarantined after pilots reported multiple passengers with flu-like symptoms. It felt like a flying infirmary. I mean, it was just like a symphony of coughing. The bathrooms were in high demand. The massive Airbus A380 boarded by medical professionals in contact with the Centers for Disease Control. Every passenger's temperature checked as anxious families waited. She was hoping the this man texting with his wife on the plane. And it was middle of the runway and cops all around, ambulances. So she she was concerned. Rapper and TV star Vanilla Ice tweeted the scene from his seat on board. The flight originated in Dubai, but authorities report some passengers came from Mecca, which has seen flu outbreaks in the past. We get concerned about different diseases spreading, and once they spread, if people get on the airplane, then they can take that transnationally across the globe. Officials say of the 549 people on board, 10, including seven crew members, were taken to the hospital. 
New York health officials believe they have the flu. The rest were allowed to continue on their way. What are you looking forward to right now? Going home. With a warning to watch for symptoms. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News, New York. So that sounds pretty horrific, right? <laughs> it does. I mean, it would have been slightly offset by vanilla ice being on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would cheat you. <laughs> They've got to be so wrapping away. <laughs> vom, vom, baby. <laughs> Um, but so it was obviously well believed, but I guess no, nothing was ever found, right? Is that what you're going to say? No serious disease or cause was found, except for a couple, less than a handful, who had flu-like symptoms. Which is normal in the population, I would think. Correct. However, the other passengers, after observing those passengers, started to mirror and exaggerate their symptoms. Uh, and it resulted in over 20% of the passengers on the plane convincing themselves that they were very seriously ill. Yeah, yeah, I see. It's like a little Petri dish of experimentation in um, in the meowing nuns. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that was a good story to close with because you do tend to think of it and go, well, I get the oppression that those nuns were under, you know what I mean? Or the pressure that the military were under, or I liked it because it was a reasonably everyday environment. You know, not everybody flies often, but certainly being in a confined space where you can't get off, um, seeing a couple of people with some cold, like severe cold, like symptoms just spread just the hysteria just spread within hours to have 20% of the plane feeling they were seriously ill. And I was struck by 11 people actually went to hospital. Seven of those were the crew. (laughs) Oh. So that must have added to the panic as well, right? Who were not ill. The crew were not ill. They weren't suffering from any real symptoms. It was just all, As you would say, psychosomatic. Yeah, psychosomatic. Although I don't think it's the same thing, but um, I do recall last year, I think an Air France plane was turned around because someone did a very smelly poo. And that has has played on my mind a lot. And I wonder whether in this state, loads of people were thinking, well, now I need a really smelly poo. Right, (laughs) right. Well, it did say in that news report, the bathrooms became incredibly busy. Oh, God. Yeah. So... I guess over the, this week and last week, we've sort of worked out that um, our our ability to think sanely and straightly in inverted commas can easily be impacted without even us realising that our perception has been altered. Yeah, and that um, that doesn't... What I took away from those two episodes that we've done over the last couple of weeks, that doesn't have to be like some quick shocking event so it's not necessarily a post-traumatic stress thing it can be you know environmental or cultural over time so you know after a great plague everybody's living conditions is so oppressive or you're 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 oppressed within a nunnery and can't express yourself that even over a long period of time that can suddenly trip you into a disassociated trance state 
that can lead to either you individually experiencing something that's not quite real or en masse mm, on, mm. in groups doing that, which is very scary. It is very scary. One one final thought from me to finish up on. There was a lot of talk about that during the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Right. Do you remember people often say, oh, people were phoning up, people were scared, they yeah. worried... That is actually largely an invention of the press. Yeah, yeah, it didn't actually happen. Didn't that way. actually happen. Yeah, but um, uh, it could have. It could have. I think obviously there were some people that thought it was true. Like when we talk about the BBC Ghost Watch thing. Yeah, that did affect some people, but I don't think it was on mass. But that idea, where I was, where my thought was going, was that idea of mass. Um, misconception about the situation yeah and belief it must we sort of know it intrinsically otherwise people wouldn't have made up that story about war of the worlds so maybe we sort of maybe we are aware of this but we don't see it very often and, and it's hard for us to tell when right. that is a thing or not yeah 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 and, and like i said it doesn't explain well i guess it could i was th- i started off this episode talking about or mentioning Phoenix Lights incident um, with the UFO, huge UFO sighting that was seen by hundreds of people and officials. And I think the mayor did that crazy, was it the mayor did that crazy press conference where he said, yeah. I've got an alien here and he had his deputy dressed up as a kind of alien yeah. grey. Yeah. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe and the military had scrambled jets and there were stories of all that stuff you know it's funny when you've got video evidence of stuff like that it's harder to see how that fits into mass hysteria unless you can you know because i think the official argument for the phoenix lights was it was some kind of military flares which made no sense when you saw the it footage. Was military flares yeah. yeah it didn't make sense when you saw the footage or some of the footage at least. So I don't think, I mean, I had a feeling that over the last two weeks we could almost sit there and go, that's it, we've solved everything paranormal. It's all, you know, dissociated trance states and stuff like that. I think I'm left feeling doesn't explain all paranormal, but it might explain some paranormal activity. I think that's that's the thing is it's a bit like when people investigate UFOs you can, if out of 100, you can explain 99. You haven't explained UFOs, you've explained yeah, yeah. 99. Yeah. But it, it is good um, because it, it, it helps us to get a clearer idea and be more... Um, when you get eyewitness reports, interrogate the data a bit more. Don't just assume because two people said it, it's the right thing. Yeah. Um, well, we've but, said on the podcast before, there is this tendency to kind of play down um, the doubter's point of view if you're a believer and vice versa. Yeah. And I think exploring these psychological things that we've done over the last two episodes, as you're saying, I think is important so that people, as much for the disbelievers who would go, oh, there you see, it's, it's, it's all that. It makes you hone in on the things that are much less explainable via psychological or other routes rather than getting almost uh, down a rabbit hole with something that could be 
have an explanation that is more psychological or natural. Yeah, 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 yeah. I completely agree. Well, that was really interesting. Um, I feel like um, we've uh, we've learnt some stuff over the last two weeks. We've done knee deep in uh, scientific papers. Yeah. So um, if if you're feeling in a trance-like state. Try and spread the word that everyone should listen to the quantum mechanics. That there's no harm in that. <laughs> All either of you, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't comment, but I did see some of you recommending us on the Witch Farm um, Facebook page. Very much appreciated. Thank you. It does help with um, the more numbers we have, the uh, the easier it is to carry on making this. So thank you. Yeah, and the bigger we smile. So thank you very much, and we will uh, be back next week I think coming up I don't know what you think Ben coming up to the Christmas period I think we'll go a bit more ghost story-esque rather than this route but it's been good to have this I've got something brewing that is a little (laughs) bit ghosty a little bit Christmassy and a little bit well um, I'm not going to say just in case it doesn't turn out because I've still got half the research to do. Okay, but um, it's it's a children's story that will freak you out Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that. So we will see you next week on The Quantum Mechanic. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Are you the quantum mechanics?